just like to say a big thank you to, to Chris and to the guys in the band, <laughs> David and Richard, uh, Chris as well for leading prayers. Uh, it's a marvelous thing that people contribute and hold our, our church life on Sunday mornings together in this way. And we're just thankful to them all. Let's pray. That people were obviously waiting for. I also got this one, which I suspect is not quite so high up the Times bestseller list. Surprised by Hope, written by Tom Wright. And a lot of what I say has sort of come out of that. I know some people here have read this, so they'll be taking notes and tell me where I misrepresent him. So anything that's good is probably Tom Wright's. The rubbish is probably mine. But if something gets home, let's hope it makes a difference. Hope's a big motivator. Hope changes not just how we feel, it's not just an emotion, it changes how we act. Of course, this is the big problem with a rationalist view of human activity, because how we feel and what we think actually changes the future, changes what we do. Hope that things could be different in the social and political life in the US, and the general sense of dissatisfaction with how things were done led huge numbers of Americans, particularly black Americans, to vote last November. They had hope that something could be different. Despair, which I guess is hope's polar opposite, it produces very different responses. It tends to lead either to a kind of nihilistic cynicism, why bother? It's not going to make any difference anyway. Or perhaps to a selfish, self-centered hedonism. As Isaiah put it, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What's the point? Well, hope changes that view. Hope convinces us, despite whatever evidence we may see to the contrary, that it's worth building for the future. It's worth investing in other people's lives. It's worth investing in our own lives to realize the gifts that we have. Paul puts it this way, when he comes to the end of that chapter we read a bit from, 1 Corinthians 15, he finishes with this amazing statement, coming out of the hope that he's been trying to establish. He says this, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That verse summarizes some of the consequences of our hope, the expected outcomes. I suppose it begs the question, what is the nature of this hope? What exactly are we looking forward to? That matters because the shape that our hope has will determine the direction our life takes the direction that our actions tend to. 
And there's a huge risk here that by fostering the wrong hopes, the wrong expectations, we get bent into the wrong shape. So as Christians, we need to have some understanding, as best we can, of what our ultimate hope in Christ is. And I want to explore this idea a little bit, both this week and next, looking at the resurrection hope, which flows directly out of the Easter message. One of the points Tom Wright emphasizes is that the nature of this resurrection hope hasn't been one that the church has necessarily emphasized a lot over recent decades. Now you may think that, well, of course, it's what we all believe. But I want to tell you a story from what must be nearly 30 years ago now of evangelist Arthur Blessed. How many people here have heard of Arthur Blessed? You're all older than you look. <laughs> Arthur Blessed, for those who are younger among us, he used to tour the country pulling a cross behind him. And then he would have evangelistic services wherever he came to along the way. He told, used to tell this story of about a transcontinental air flight that he was making within the US. And this flight had more than one stop, and so the flight attendants had to go around checking who was getting off and who was staying on until the flight reached its final port of call. Arthur Blessed says how he had fallen asleep, and so while this process was going on, they had to come around and waken him, and this is the first he knew of what they were trying to do. So as he tells it, it goes something like this, the flight attendant shakes his arm, and he becomes aware, saying, sir, sir, wake up, sorry to disturb you, sir, what's your final destination? And Arthur Blessed's reply was, well, I said, heaven, it nearly blew her mind. <laughs> he was an excitable guy. I have a lot of respect for his ministry. I know a lot of people who actually became Christians through the ministry instead the course. But I would respectfully suggest that Arthur Blessed is wrong about his final destination. If he means that the final destination, the final hope for Christians, is that our souls go to heaven when we die, then I think he's wrong. He's selling the message short. But that seems to be, I think, what a lot of us think about when we think in terms of our future hope. And so perhaps we need to return again to look at what the Bible has to say about this and see whether you agree with me or maybe disagree with me, whether that's what it says. Let's start then with this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. In 12 to 19, Paul goes over and over, back and forwards, over the same basic message. 
What he's saying seems to be, look, don't try to wriggle out of any difficulties you may find in believing something as startling and out of the ordinary as the resurrection. Don't try to sweep it under the intellectual carpet whilst holding on to the bits of the beliefs of Christianity that you're more comfortable with. He says if there's no bodily resurrection, then it's all nonsense and a complete waste of time. No resurrection, then no Easter. No Easter, then preaching and faith are useless and that evangelists like Paul himself have lied about what God has done and those who've died in Christ are now lost. Verse 19, he summarizes it like this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So he's fairly solid that we've got to hold on to this idea of a bodily resurrection. But look how he starts the line of argument. In verses 12 and 13 he says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That suggests to me that some of the church in Corinth were saying, okay, we accept that Jesus was raised, but we don't think anybody else will be. We don't think that will be part of the general experience of Christ's people. And Paul's saying, sorry, if you want one, you've got to believe in the other. It's all or nothing. Paul believed in the resurrection of the dead as part of the irreducible essence of Christianity. Take it away and you haven't much left in his view. We don't primarily believe that our souls will go to heaven when we die. The Bible hasn't got a huge amount to say about that. That's something that scholars at least tell me not least Desi Alexander, and he's a scholar I trust. But a lot of folk have said Tom Wright agrees with Desi, so Tom's probably right too. But this idea of souls is something that kind of came in as a strong influence from Greek philosophy. It's more to do with Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, than maybe it has to do with the New Testament. They separated the outward material from some sort of intangible essence of the thing. And getting rid of the messy physical stuff to say the reality was the inner spirit or the inner concept that lay behind the physical outward appearance. And you can see how in Christian context that kind of lends itself to separating out the good soul from the bad body, the messy body, the body that lets us die. Now Jewish and Christian teaching do emphasize the importance of the spirit that drives our actions, the motive power. And that's probably what Paul's talking about in the second half of 
1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about the spiritual as opposed to the physical body. Tom Wright would say he's not talking about whether this is a car or a horse. He's talking about whether it's a petrol-driven car or an electric-driven car. What's the inner motive power driving the body? That gets a bit tricky for me because he resorts to Greek and things of which I have no knowledge. But anyway, that's the idea he feels that underlies this. Jewish and Christian teaching has tended to be much more holistic. We live our lives, we express ourselves through body, spirit, mind, and heart. Not as divisible entities, not as bits that can exist on their own so much, but as facets, different facets of our being, of who we are. Maybe the 20th century philosopher Wittgenstein was onto something when he said the human body is the best picture we have of the human soul. Now, if you don't understand what that means, I don't either, but it kind of gets some idea that there's more to about our inner reality that can sometimes show on the surface. I mainly use it because my daughter said I had to use it as a quote from her in the sermon. So. That one was for Helen, I guess. The New Testament is rather vague concerning what happens to us immediately after death. We'll come back to that. But it has lots to say about the ultimate hope. And that always focuses on the resurrection of all believers. And this is the core teaching that Tom Wright refers to as life after, life after death. This is our ultimate hope. Let's deal with the life after death bit. The New Testament assumes, seems to assume that we will be consciously in God's presence when we die. Not all Christians agree with that. Some believe it's a that the asleep thing is going to be mean we're unconscious. But there are passages such as Jesus talking to the thief on the cross about being in paradise with him. Paul writing in Philippians that we were looking at in the autumn, talking about how he would go, was wishing to go to be with Christ, which was far better, rather than staying on and living and working with him, even though he thought that's what God wanted him to do. So those seem to talk about a definite conscious presence in, with God, with Jesus, after death. But that's not the eternal life that's ultimately in store for us. That hope involves the resurrection of our bodies on Jesus' return. And so we have to think a little bit about that if we want to understand what we're building towards. Now I hasten to say that anyone I think who claims to know in detail what God's intention is for our ultimate future is at, at best a bit impertinent. Jesus himself was very clear that he didn't know the day or the hour of the final return in judgment. 
But 1 Corinthians 15 stands as some sort of signpost pointing into the mist of our Christian future. It says this, Christ has been indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, and just as we have borne or carried the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. So what does that tell us? What can we extract from that? To me, it seems to be saying that the resurrection body that we will have will share some of the characteristics of Christ's resurrection body. If he was the first fruit, then the later fruit are bound to share the chief characteristics that he showed. Jesus remained Jesus, recognizably Jesus, after his resurrection. And although it may not have been a physical body as we experience it now, he had some sort of physical body. Remember, the disciples were concerned that he was a ghost, some sort of disembodied spirit, a soul perhaps in our language. And he was at great pains to eat with them, to let them touch him, to speak with them, to prove to them that no, he wasn't some sort of disembodied spirit. He was in fact resurrected to a new bodily life. Most amazing of all, and something that bears thinking about, the physical evidence of his crucifixion was still present on his new body. The price of our salvation is marked on Jesus' body for all eternity. In the marks of the nails on his hands and his feet and the spear wound on his side. And one day, I believe, we will be able to touch those wounds ourselves without embarrassment, but with great awe and great worship and great love. So Jesus' resurrection body had many similarities to the normal body. It was a physical body, but it was different too. This new body was never again going to know pain, frustration, death. We heard the story of Laz earlier, Lazy Laz. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. He was raised back into mortality. Jesus is raised into immortality. His life was qualitative, is qualitatively different than the one he had before. So there is continuity and there's discontinuity between this life and the one that we ultimately are promised. And that may include the idea that our bodies may bear some of the characteristics of the things that make us us, the things 
that we have contributed the things that allow us to share in Christ's work within his kingdom. Even the blemishes, like Jesus' scars may be thought of as blemishes, even those things may be made glorious in ways we can't even guess at. We will be set free to be the people that God always intended us to be. In fact, to be more ourselves than we have ever been in this life. Now you may say, does this really matter? Does it make any difference whether we have new bodies or not? Well, Paul thought it did. He wrote all of this stuff because he thought it really mattered. And the reason Paul thinks it matters is because he sees the resurrection of Jesus and the promise that holds as a fulcrum, a fulcrum on which God's entire purpose for the universe turns. A moment in history, a point in time that it points to a new cosmology. In Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in 28, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him. So God may be all in all. This is a startling description of an ultimate future reality. Christ will once and for all destroy every authority that sets itself up in opposition to God's rule, the rule that was broken first in Eden with such awful consequence. And death will be the last of those enemies Death is not a friend, it is an enemy. That's how the Bible sees it. But it's a beaten enemy because Christ has been raised from the dead. And at the very end, he will hand back the restored kingdom to God the Father. Wonderful image there of how the Trinity works. God gives Christ the authority to represent him. Christ uses that to claim back God's kingdom, and then he gives it back to God the Father, including himself, placing himself under the Father's authority again. This is the logical end point of what started in God's revelation to his people Israel, and it found its ex clearest expression in the Incarnation. Jesus' message is always 
the message of the kingdom. Where people take him seriously, the Spirit uses them to establish bridgeheads, claiming back ground. It was rightfully God's in the first place, but which has been ceded to the powers that oppose him, ceded through disobedience and through rebellion, our disobedience, our rebellion. But however hard-pressed we may be, however difficult and hurtful our experiences may be, the message of Easter is that victory is assured. The foundation of our hope is the resurrection of Jesus as the assurance of our own resurrection. It's not that just that our souls will go to heaven, but it's rather that Christ will come back to earth and reestablish something approaching the first order, the intended kingdom, a universe that's set up to obey the laws that God intends it to have. This is the hope that gives Paul his joyful confidence as he faces the old enemy death. Again, at the end of this chapter, this is how he finishes. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is our sure and certain hope.